The, the meaning of the resurrection for us today is as relevant as it was then, maybe even more so. Because the truth is, what we see in movies and in culture again and again shows that we have a longing for eternal life. Mel and I, so my wife and I, recently were, and we do this every couple of years that happens, something kicks it off, but we remember that there was a series of movies called Harry Potter, and we decided to make our way through the whole set. These are the, these are the ones that the uh, books were based on. But the, um, thank you the two people who got that. Um, but uh, we, over a series of months, we'll kind of work our way through it, mostly because we have three kids, so we go to bed at about 8 p.m., so we watch it at 17 minutes at a time, which takes a while to get through all these movies. But anyway, eventually we kind of get through it. But this is the first time in doing it. We've done it maybe a couple of times. This is the first time where it's clicked for me what Voldemort, the main bad guy, what his motivation actually is. And I don't know why I hadn't picked up on it before. And it might just be in the movies rather than in the books. But for the first time, I realized that the main reason he's doing all of this is that he wants to live forever. There's all this kind of hatred for muggles and whatever that is. But he, the main reason he's doing all of these terrible things is that he wants to live forever. And as he does, as he kind of tries to prolong his life and has to take life from others in order to do it, without giving away too many spoilers here... Um, it, it, it becomes apparent that he physically starts to deteriorate, that he starts to look more and more deathly. And then I kind of noticed, actually, that theme carries across a bunch of movies, doesn't it? That there are a lot of movies where when someone prolongs their life inordinately, they start to look more and more deathly. They start to come apart. And it's funny, there's, there's this theme that kind of comes up in movies again and again of the idea that Actually, if you were to live longer in this world, it wouldn't be a blessing, but probably a curse. Right? Vampire movies, kind of as they roll around for each generation, kind of wrestle with this idea of if you could live forever, would it even be a good thing? And so we seem to, what we see is this kind of weird, strange split desire where we as humans both want to live forever. We don't want to die. We are afraid of death and we don't want life to be cut short. And yet we don't want to live forever here right now. The idea is that if you could live for a thousand years, would you even want to in this world? And so we have this strange kind of conundrum where we want to live longer, we want to live maybe forever, and yet we don't want to live here. We don't want to die, and yet we don't want to live forever here. And this text is the answer to this longing. That if Jesus rose from the dead... If he has conquered death and made a new life that we can live into, then what we have is redemption. Life forever, but not like it is now and not like it is right here. That he offers genuine and true hope. That the resurrection, if it's true, we can depend on it and know that there is a hope coming that is worth living for. That he is about to bring in, he is the first fruits of an age that he is about to bring in where there will be life eternal and where the biggest issue that has ever ruined this world, the issue of sin, is completely dealt with. And so I'm going to pray that as we look at this text, we would see the depth of the hope of the gospel and in the story of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the God who knows all things, who created all things, who is sovereign over all things who saw the sin and wickedness on the earth and sent Jesus to die in our place for our sin and to rise again to new life. And we pray that as we look at this word on the resurrection, 
that we would understand the meaning of the hope that there is in Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your glorious name. Amen. Well, so far, if you've been with us in our series in John, we've come to this second half of the book of John, which is basically only a couple, it only really records a couple of hours in Jesus' life. He enters Jerusalem with his disciples. He knows he's going to die the next day, so this is a Thursday night, and he is having one last meal with his disciples. And while they're eating a meal, while they're sharing a meal, he's trying to prepare them for what's going to happen the next day, because none of them are ready for what they're about to see. Not in terms of just the sheer wickedness of what they're about to see in Jesus being murdered, but they're not ready for the implications of it either. And so Jesus has this one last meal with them to prepare them for what's going to happen because he's about to die and rise again and then he's going to send them out to tell everyone about him and they're going to die as well. And so he's trying to prepare them for what's about to happen. And so over the last few chapters we've seen him tell them that they're going to need to be servants, that they're called to serve just like he has served them. They're going to need to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That there is no way or truth or life apart from him. He's telling them that they're going to be hated. That they won't be entirely loved for the message that they bring into this world. He tells them that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit to empower them, to, to send this message out to the ends of the earth. And he also prays for them that they would be one, that his church would be united just like Jesus and his Father are united. And so he's done all of this, and as we saw last week, then, then he's arrested almost immediately afterwards, put on a mock trial, and he's beaten and flogged. Now, after that he dies, can you imagine how his disciples are feeling at this point? Just try and, try and put yourself where they are for a few minutes. So this is, we've come through this whole gospel story of Jesus calling this group of disciples together, they see him heal the, the, uh, the sick. They see him raise the dead. He teaches them all these things. Then they see him crucified in front of them. These guys see their friend die a horrible death in front of them. They're there with his mum watching her son die. And imagine how they'd feel standing there, powerless to stop it. Seeing their friend Jesus, whom they have followed for three years, whom they left everything to follow, be crucified in front of them, bleed out in front of them, suffocate in front of them. And imagine what they must be thinking. They'll be standing there watching Jesus on the cross, thinking like, Jesus, why don't you do something? Like they have seen him feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. They've seen, him, they've seen centurions afraid to arrest him because of his just sheer presence. They've seen him calm wind and waves and walk on water. And here he is on cross submitting to death. Then they would have seen the Roman soldiers mock and spit and drag his lifeless body over, the, over their shoulders to a grave and hear his mother weep. And for two nights they would not have been able to sleep, just thinking over these things again and again and again. And then this happens. John 20, sentences 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and the, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday by the way, for the Jewish people, the Saturday was the Sabbath, which was the day of rest, the day you couldn't work, it was the last day of the week, the seventh day of the week. And everything kicked off on a Sunday. So this is the first day of the week. 
Now, inadvertently, this is why Christians gather on a Sunday. The reason that we are gathering now on a Sunday is because it's a tradition that's been passed down throughout the church that on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, his people would gather to hear from his word and to encourage one another. So we are here kind of commemorating that. But they go to the grave, and, and Mary goes to this grave because she expects to find Jesus dead. Why? Because even 2,000 years ago, people didn't just rise from the dead. C.S. Lewis talks about a concept called chronological snobbery, where we kind of believe that we as a generation are kind of the peak of humanity, that we are the smartest and most enlightened people who have ever lived. And it transitions somewhere along the way, but 2,000 years ago, people just believed anything they heard. They were completely gullible. And this is entirely untrue. And you can see it again and again in the text. They weren't, they weren't convinced initially that Jesus rose from the dead because they expected when someone dies and you see them die, that they remain dead. And so she goes to the grave, being a rational human being, expecting to not see him there. Mary Magdalene was a close friend of Jesus. She traveled with this group of disciples along with them and had been there for the whole journey. And she goes to see him. And when she gets there, the first thing she assumes is they've taken him away. When she sees that the tomb is empty, she doesn't immediately assume that he's risen from the dead. The first thing she assumes is they must have taken his body away. And she's distraught. She assumes that they must have taken him away because his tomb was sealed with a stone. You couldn't just casually move it. It took a group of soldiers to put this stone in place and it would take a group of soldiers to remove it. And so her assumption is, well, the Romans must have moved his body for whatever reason. That's the only possible logical explanation for a stone that large, guarded by Roman soldiers, to be moved and for a body to be gone. And so she runs back to tell the others about what's happened. And we pick the story up in, in sentence 3, John 23 to 10. It says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes, cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up by itself, in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Peter, hearing this report, so he's kind of team captain for the disciples, Mary comes back and says, they've moved his body, and being a rational person, he wants to see evidence of this because this is, this is unprecedented. And so he goes to the tomb because he wants to see for himself. He doesn't just take her word for it. And with them goes the other disciple. Now, if you've been with us through the series in John, you may know that John, who wrote the gospel, is this other disciple. It's a humble way of referring to himself. But I do enjoy that he, <laughs> he included the detail that he actually outran Peter. Like, not wanting to put tickets on himself, but he's just, you know... Um, it just casually put down that like, so both disciples were going, I mean, it's not an important detail, but I guess this disciple sort of outran the other one. Is, like, whatever, it's embarrassing, but it's true. But um, the reason it's in there, the reason it's actually, you kind of miss it as you read over, but the reason it's in there is kind of important. The reason isn't that he's, like, I imagine that he's kind of bragging about how fast he is at running. It's the case that when, you, when, it, when someone's recounting something that they've actually genuinely witnessed, it's a sign of truth when they include kind of arbitrary details. 
So police who take reports will, will note that this is actually the case, that when someone is giving a true account, they often remember things that are seemingly insignificant but for some reason stick out, and it's a sign that an account is genuine when it includes extra details. That a, a story that's been made up tends to be far too clean and far too smooth in the way it's retold, that a genuine recount of a story tends to include things that we just happen to remember because the human mind just works that way. We just remember certain sights or smells or insignificant things that we include as we're recounting things. And so we get this in the Gospel of John a number of times. But here, I notice that when uh, he says in 28 to 9, that when he saw, he believed, for they did not yet understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So at this point, they don't, they don't fully get the reality of what's going on here. And so they go home because what else do you do? And then look what happens next. In 2011 to 13, we read this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She doesn't go home. She stays there. She goes into the tomb to look again. And behold, there are two angels there. And they ask her, Why are you weeping? And still at this point, she's thinking, Because he's been taken away. They've taken his body away. And then we read in 2014 this, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but, I go, to my but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now this is interesting. She sees Jesus, but initially doesn't recognize him. And this happens in, in all of the accounts. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in all of them, in various ways, people don't seem to recognize him at first. And it's never explained as to why. It might be that uh, in the grief, they're just not expecting to see someone risen from the dead, so it catches them off guard. Here, it might be that she wasn't looking up. She was still looking at the ground when he first spoke to her. But it seems in many of the cases, they don't seem to recognize him at first, and then they do. And we'll get to that a little bit more later. But right here, we see that she is heard his voice and recognizes that it's Jesus and is completely blown away by it. And so then Jesus goes, as he says he will, to the rest of the disciples. Look in John 20, 19 to 23. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and they, uh, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the doors are locked. If you remember what happened before, after Peter and John witnessed what had happened in the tomb, it says they went straight home. 
The reason they went straight home, we're told here, is because they're afraid of the Jews. They've just killed your leader. And I imagine many of the disciples are thinking, well, if anyone's going to be next, it's going to be us. And so they're basically in hiding, and the doors are locked. And again, this is a detail that seems to come out in all of the Gospels, that they're in a room, and it's locked, and then suddenly Jesus is there. Now, they could be just leaving out the detail where he kind of snuck through the window. He's like, surprise, right? Because, I mean, if you're going to rise from the dead, you don't just show up like through the front door, right? But it seems to be that they don't know quite how he got in there. And whether this is an indication that his body, though physical, because he continues to eat with his disciples, is somehow different and transformed, his resurrection body is different to what he had before. Perhaps this is why they don't recognize him initially, that there's something slightly different about him. But again, we're not really told. What we are told is that they witness to his resurrection physically and bodily. That he shows them his hands and his feet. He shows them the very scars that he has to demonstrate that he is Jesus who rose from the dead. This isn't just something that they're making up. It's not a dream or a vision that they are physically meeting the risen Lord Jesus in person. But one of them is missing, and we pick up his story next. In John 20, 24 to 29, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, because he was a twin, they were pretty, pretty good with the nicknames back then, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, we get this detail again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So we see that Thomas wasn't with the group initially. Then, later on, he says, Look, unless I, unless I just see what you guys have seen, I'm not going to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Again, a rational human being. People don't just rise from the dead. And he's often been called or mischaracterized as doubting Thomas. You might have even heard that phrase when someone is a bit skeptical that you call them a doubting Thomas. But I don't think he's being characterized like that in this gospel. All he wants is the same evidence and testimony that every other disciple had. And not only that, but we're told in the book of Acts that in order to be an apostle, that is someone sent by Jesus to tell people about Jesus, you had to be a witness to the resurrection. You couldn't have just heard about it or know someone really closely who saw it. You had to be someone who had met the physical, resurrected Jesus. And so I don't think he's being characterized here as being especially skeptical or more skeptical than the other disciples. He's just like, look, you guys got to see it. Unless I see Jesus risen from the dead as well, I'm not going to believe either. And then eight days later, again, the doors are locked. They are still afraid. They are still worried. And Jesus enters among them, and he beholds Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. And I don't know if you noticed what Jesus said, but even at that point, Jesus is thinking of his church down the line. Of you, if you are here today and you believe in Jesus, he's thinking of you even at this point. Because he said there to, Peter, uh, to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that would, unless anyone here is 
2,000 years old would include anyone here who follows Jesus. You have not physically seen Jesus and yet believed. And if you're here and skeptical about the resurrection, you're, and I think it would be an understandable sort of intuition, you would think that, look, I guess it's one of those things where you've got to be a person of faith. You've just got to kind of believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Look, there isn't any evidence because we've kind of actually been there or witnessed it. So I guess it's kind of take it or leave it. You either believe that this really happened or you didn't. But I would say there are some very good reasons to believe it. And you know what? This, the idea of the resurrection has not been criticized in recent history, but over a long period. People have posed many arguments as to what could have happened here uh, that would not include a miracle or a miraculous resurrection. One of the earliest theories proposed was the wrong tomb theory. Uh, the proponents of this view argued that according to the gospel accounts, the women visited the grave early in the morning while it was still dark, but due to their kind of uh, like emotional distress, they went to the wrong tomb. They got there, they made the mistake, they thought, oh my gosh, he's not here, he must be risen from the dead, and overjoyed to see that it was empty, they told everyone, and then it just blew way out of proportion and went across the world. Now there are several flaws with this explanation, and the first one is this. It's extremely doubtful that the apostles would not have corrected this error. If it was the case that they went to the wrong tomb, it's, it's unlikely that the apostles then would have had the confidence to go out, like that was enough for them to then go out and tell the world that Jesus has risen from the dead. We're told in the Gospels that they knew where it was. It was in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. It wasn't some vague grave. They, they note specifically where it was. But not only that, but, uh, but also his opponents. That if Jesus was just in another grave somewhere else, it would have been very easy to refute what they were saying. If they were going around saying he's risen from the dead, they're like, no, it's fine, he's still in the grave over here, he's still being guarded. It would have been so easy to refute. And so really, it's not, it's not an argument that many people hold to because it's a weak argument against the resurrection. But the second one is this, and one that may have occurred to you. The second one is the idea that maybe it was a hallucination. The idea that, look, again, in their grief, in their desire, they'd hoped so much that Jesus was going to be the one who was worth following, that they kind of just hallucinated that it really happened. Uh, Dr. William McNeil articulates this position when he says, The Roman authorities in Jerusalem arrested and crucified Jesus. But soon afterwards, the dispirited apostles gathered in an upstairs room and suddenly felt again the heartwarming presence of their master. This seemed absolutely convincing evidence that Jesus' death on the cross had not been the end but the beginning. The apostles bubbled over with excitement and tried to explain to all who would listen what had happened. So they're together in a room. They're distraught over their friend's death. They kind of feel this sense that Jesus is there and amongst them. They kind of extrapolate from that that Jesus really was there. And it's kind of a group hallucination. Now this position is pretty unrealistic for a number of reasons. One is that hallucinations are actually pretty rare. And people who, who have them tend to, to follow certain characteristics, and it tends to be very subjective and individual. It's not impossible, but they are very rare. But the idea that two people or more would have the exact same hallucination is exceptionally rare. And statistically, it would be so rare, it would almost be on par with a miracle. And not only that, the claim is not just that this group of people met him, but that over 500 people witnessed to the resurrection over that time. This would be an unprecedented group hallucination. 
But even if this were the case, they would still need to account for an empty tomb. They would still need some actual evidence, otherwise their hallucination would have been refuted flat out and straight away. The hallucination theory doesn't hold. But not to be outdone, critics have gone for another theory, the swoon theory. This is the idea that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He got very close to death. He was worn down even almost to the point of death. And he collapsed on the cross. The Romans mistakenly thought he was dead, buried him, and then he came back alive on the other side. This one is, is probably my favorite out of all of them. Because just, just imagine this. The first issue you've got to get through is that Roman soldiers weren't like... They weren't novices at execution. It wasn't something that you threw to the work experience kid. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to kill people. And not only that, we're told in the gospel accounts that even after they took him down from the cross, they put a spear in his side to see whether or not, they would say blood and water separated, that the plasma had sort of separated. They knew how to test whether or not someone was dead. We haven't invented that in the last sort of couple of decades. But let's imagine that they even made that huge mistake. Let's give this theory as good a run as we possibly can. Let's imagine Jesus really did collapse on the cross. He was so close to death that they thought he was dead, and they, they buried him in the tomb. It would mean that having sort of, he would have to survive two nights in kind of almost sub-zero temperatures, that over that time somehow his body regenerates enough that he's got the strength to sort of get up, fold his clothes neatly without any sort of stains on, them, on, the, in the, on the tombstone. Then... <laughs> then push an enormous stone, like beyond supernatural strength, push the stone away, beat up the soldiers who are there, then go and meet his disciples looking like death warmed up and say to them, I rose from the dead. The idea that any of them would even believe him at that point is impossible. In fact, that might be the one thing more miraculous than the resurrection itself. One, one scholar puts it this way. He says, it's impossible that a being who had who had stolen half-dead out, out of the grave, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was the conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression that would lay at the bottom of their future ministry. It can't happen. Others hold that the body was stolen, and this one's even uh, uh, mentioned in one of the Gospels. And yet, of course, if it was stolen, who would have any advantage to stealing it? If it was the disciples, how would they have done that? They were afraid. They were alone. How would they have overcome a group of Roman soldiers, somehow moved this stone and taken it away? If it was the Jews or the authorities, why would they do that? It would just give weight to these disciples, this, this movement that they were trying to crush. And same again for the Romans. It doesn't hold. None of these hold. But more than that, there are three kind of startling things that you need to reckon with, three facts about the resurrection that you need to reckon with if you were to refute it. And the first one is this. Christianity started in the very place where Jesus died and rose again. That the very first converts to Christianity were people in the very area where they had most access to the evidence. If you were to ever tell a lie, your best bet is to tell a story about something that happened with very little details about where or when it happened in a place far away. You ever notice when people talk about urgent, le uh, urban, urgent legends, urban legends, it always tends to be like 
um, in, in a place or once upon a time. It always starts with that sort of thing. It's very little detail because when it comes to telling a lie about something major or significant, if you give any details away, it's very easy to verify or falsify it, right? The eyewitnesses to the resurrection made their first conversions in the very place where that resurrection happened where you could go down the street and check up with the very witnesses who were claiming to have met Jesus. And not just one or two of them, but it says over 500. It would be a very bad way to try and make up a lie. The second one is this, that the first Christians were Jewish. These were the people who were least likely to believe in this story. They believed that there was a Messiah to come. Jesus claimed to be that Messiah, the King who was going to rule over absolutely everything. And they believed that this Messiah was going to dominate the Romans and, and establish Israel as the dominant nation in the ancient Near East again. And instead, Jesus just died. He did the exact opposite of what they thought a Messiah should do. It would have taken something incredible, some incredible amount of evidence for them to believe that this same Jesus was the king of the universe who had conquered sin and death. The resurrection is the only thing that fits. To have actually risen from the dead is the only compelling thing that would take a group who are unlikely to believe that he was the Messiah to believing that he was the Messiah. And more than that, this is the third fact, to actually die for it. If this was something that a group of people made up, it would be unlikely that they would lay down their lives for it and that this many of them would lay down their lives for it. It might be the case that a few people might take a lie all the way to a grave, an early grave. But for all the disciples, except for John, and we're going to hear a little bit about this next week, all of them went to an early death because they were convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and that their life was immortal, even if it was taken from them. I mean, look at the disciples. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. James was the first to go executed by sword, John's brother, and he witnessed it happen. Philip was crucified, Bartholomew was crucified, Thomas was killed by spear, Matthew was executed by sword, James was crucified, Thaddeus shot through with arrows, and Simon was crucified. And John, the only one who survived all of them, survived torture and exile in order to testify to Jesus. These sound like men who just made it up. And it wasn't just them, but others too laid down their lives for it. These facts have to be dealt with. No matter how much of a skeptic you are, these facts or issues need to be dealt with. There needs to be a reasonable case against it. There is not no historical evidence for the fact that Jesus really rose from the dead. And if that is you, if you are unconvinced, then I urge you to be sure about why. Because this is not nothing. And the implications of this are absolutely transformative. That if this is true, this is the very hope that we're looking for. The desire that we have to live forever and yet not in this world as we know it is answered if Jesus is risen from the dead. And so if that's you, I'd urge you to find out that later in this meeting when we, when we pass around Connect cards, we'd love to hear from you if you want to hear about whether or not there is any credibility to this because it is huge. But lastly, to finish on Jesus' words, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So he's saying for you, if you are here and a follower of Jesus, the knowledge of the resurrection, the fact that you believe that the resurrection really happened, not that the resurrection happened in our hearts or that it's a metaphor for hopefulness or anything, but that Jesus really rose from the dead. He says if that is true, 
then that is a blessing for your life, that it should change your life completely. And here's one way in particular that I think it does. Years ago, there was a movie called Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I, th- I think if I'm remembering correctly, this was the first film that George Clooney ever directed. And he, uh, he made a bet with the screenwriter. The screenwriter bet that he would make another movie. His experience of it was so bad that he said he never would. But he ended up going on for more. But he, uh, in this film, it's, um, it's accounting the life of a guy called Chuck Barris who invented uh, like a whole bunch of TV game shows that were kind of maybe the, f- the first ones to really aim at the lowest common denominator. So he, he created a game called the, I think it was the Dating Show or the Dating Game. And so that, that kind of you know, was syndicated worldwide, and he created a whole bunch of others afterwards. But many of them uh, were kind of aimed at basically just capitalizing on the humiliation of the participants. But the strange thing about his life was, late in life, he released an autobiography where he said that the entire time that he was writing these game shows and getting famous and making money, he was also a, a spy working for the CIA going undercover in Russia. And, uh, and this movie is kind of like, it's written as if, what would happen if that was really true? And so it's kind of telling you, it's hard to work out whether or not the, the screenwriter thinks this really happened or not. But the movie, the movie kicks off uh, with, uh, with the camera sort of behind this main character, Chuck Barris, and he's standing there pretty much you know, naked and disheveled and just looking like a wreck of a man uh, at the lowest point in his life, and this voiceover comes over the top. And it says, there is a point in your life in which the person you could have been gives way to who you are. You didn't make the major league, you didn't become an astronaut, you didn't win a Pulitzer, you just are who you are. I think the film is getting at the idea that that he probably had some kind of a midlife crisis and tried to rewrite his own story as if he'd done something incredible with his life, other than just capitalize on people's weakness and make money out of it. But there is a pressure in this life, if this is all there is, to live the best life you possibly can. And it hits men and women around middle age because you're at the halfway point where there are certain career paths or dreams that might be too late to actualize that people's lives start to crumble a little bit. They start to worry, have I done the right things? What if I'd just worked harder earlier? What if I'd taken this opportunity? What if I'd rejected that relationship? All the what-ifs tend to come into it because there's this pressure that if this life is the only life we have, then this life is the only place in which to gain hope. And so if I've mucked it up, I've mucked it up completely. It's the one shot I've got. And I reckon that that idea and that notion is making our generation racked with anxiety. Anxiety about, did I make the right choices? Did I do it the right way? Will I make the right choices? But if it's the case that Jesus rose from the dead, all of that is relativized. Because it doesn't matter what you have done in this life, your best days are ahead of you rather than behind you. That we look to be faithful stewards of what we have now in this time and in this life. That we look to use what God has given us to bless others and to love and serve others. But if we mess up the whole thing, We know that our hope is sure because Jesus really rose from the dead bodily. It's not a wish or a dream. It really happened and it guarantees the future when he will bring about the new creation where there will be no sin, pain or death that we are to walk into. And so it doesn't doesn't trivialize our anxieties, but it certainly miniaturizes them, doesn't it? It certainly puts them into proportion. It's a helpful reminder that this is not our home. 
I mean, I started with that idea, didn't I, that most people want to live longer or maybe even live forever, and yet not in this world now. Why? Because this isn't our home. This isn't where we belong. Mel and I moved place last week, and this, this is the sixth time we've moved in eight years, but, um, but we're kind of put in our place. Um, uh, Jennifer and Mike have joined our group recently, have moved like 40 times in three minutes or something and moved countries and whatever. So like we've, we've, we've moved over a span of about seven kilometers end to end. So like it's, it's all right. We're not really in that much drama. But every time, every time we move, it is a reminder that this isn't our home, that we're just kind of tenants in this place. And every time a lease comes up, or we've got to shift, or we've got to move and all of that, it's just this reminder, right? Every day in life, whether it's frustrations, disappointments, suffering or pain even, we get these little prodding reminders that we're not home yet. We're not. We're just tenants here. And we don't choose when we get to come or when we get to go. But if Jesus rose from the dead, we are going home. And no matter what happens in this life, it is guaranteed that we are going home. And it is as sure as Jesus rose from the dead, if you believe in Jesus and trust that he is the one who died for your sin and rose again, you are going home too. And while, as I said, it doesn't trivialize what we experience in this life, it certainly miniaturizes it and puts it into proportion. If Jesus rose from the dead, we are going home. So I'm going to pray for us in a moment, and then we're going to get a chance to sing about the depths of that reality. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the one who came up with this story. That while we were dead in our sin, you sent Christ to die in our place on our behalf, to make atonement for our sin, and to rise again to new life. That this isn't some fiction or something that Christians naively or, or sentimentally hope for, but this is a historic event that Jesus rose from the grave and brings all who believe in him with him. That as he rose from the dead, we can be sure that we too will rise from the dead, that life will go on forever with him, and yet not as it is in this current world. And so, Father, we pray that this hope would transform our lives, that we wouldn't be get so caught up in the worries and anxieties of this life, that we'd be able to deal with them, and faithfully and lovingly, that we might honor Jesus, but knowing ultimately that we are not home yet, but we are going home. And Father, we pray that this would transform us into a joyful, hopeful people who love and serve those around us, just like Christ did, that you might be glorified, that we might see as many come home with us as possible, and all to the glory of you. Amen. Let's take a moment to think and reflect on the depths of that reality, and then after that, Jacob's going to let us know what's happening next.